The Resilient is a podcast about powerful people like you and me. It's brought to you by Flower, because life happens. This is The Resilient, brought to you by flowerapp.com. I'm Alex Kratoski. I suppose first things first, Sue, uh, congratulations are in order. Oh yeah, thank you. This has been quite a remarkable, quite a remarkable year for you. Yeah, I know. It's just, see, this year is just like the craziest year of my life and it's only the beginning of March. Her first grandchild was born. She was voted one of Europe's top 50 technologists for the second year running and... My boyfriend of 11 years proposed to me on um, 29th of February, so I thought it was quite cool, and on an Enigma machine simulator. Enigma, the Nazis' supposedly unbreakable wartime cipher machine that, when it was cracked and used by the British Intelligence Service at Bletchley Park, their secret communications HQ during World War II, it brought the end of the war forward by two years. And you know, that's too appropriate for Sue, who spent a chunk of the last decade campaigning to save what remains of Bletchley's buildings and its legacy. But back to that marriage proposal. You might have heard about it. It made global headlines. I tweeted it thinking, well, you know, well, of course, you know, I'm on Twitter all the time. So, you know, lots of people can say congratulations. But then it got picked up and ended up uh, being on Twitter moments. So like I had friends in, in I think, the States and, and definitely in Australia saying, Oh, it's in my Twitter moments. And I was like, oh, my God, because I thought it was just in my friend's Twitter. But, yeah, so that was kind of worldwide. Yeah, and I've, I've now got magazines asking me for the story. Great timing, as Sue's book, Saving Bletchley Park, was out two days after she and I spoke. That couldn't have been planned better. No, I know. It's just crazy how everything has kind of come together. It's like, you know, you're working away for years and years and years and years, and then suddenly all these things happen. It's crazy. Sue Black is one of the most celebrated computer scientists in Europe. She has shocking pink hair, an Essex accent, and was awarded her OBE, or Order of the British Empire, for services to technology in 2016. Which, uh, yeah, again, can't believe that really, but yeah, I can't, I mean, I haven't been along to the palace yet, but I can't wait. But Dr. Sue Black OBE's amazing year is not what we're here for. Nope, this run of success after success after success is just the latest chapter in her life. And the rest of her story, it isn't what you'd expect. It starts naturally when she was young. You know, I just had like an average family, right? Nothing very exceptional. And then when I was 12, my mum died. Um, and then uh, my family changed quite a bit, I suppose, because then it was just like my dad. I've got a brother and sister who are five years younger than me, twins. What What did she die of, Sue? She had a brain hemorrhage. So it was a sudden event? Yeah, she had a headache. She went to bed. I spent that afternoon. I think it was a Saturday, but I'm not sure it was the weekend anyway. I'm just basically sitting next to my mum in the bed as she kind of slipped into unconsciousness. But the doctor wouldn't wouldn't let the ambulance take her away. So, yeah, basically she just kind of, uh, I guess, slipped into unconsciousness and then eventually I just sat there for hours and hours and it was really, really quiet and we were just waiting for it. You know, I just really wanted the ambulance to come back and take my mum away. Um, yeah, but by the time they did, it was too late and, you know, kind of, then they came and took her, put her on a stretcher, kind of took her down the stairs, carried her out to the ambulance. I remember walking out, like, down the garden path with my sister and, um, 
you know, saying something to her like, I don't think she's coming back or something. So we watched the ambulance go down the road. You know, it's like, um, I don't know, could be a film. It's so, uh, it's weird. I can kind of see it like a, like a film really in my head now. How did your family cope with all of this? How, did you sort of separate as a unit or did you come together as a unit? Well, I think to start with, we kind of came together. You know, like, so we'd kind of hang out with my dad more, which in a way was quite nice because we had, you know, we got to spend more time with him. But then quite soon, probably about, I don't know how many months later, I can't remember, but it's probably like about three or four months later, we started going out with someone. And, you know, they were all right. We met them. We went out with them for a while. And then met someone else and then ended up getting married to her. And it seemed all right at first, but it turned out that it wasn't that great, unfortunately. The few months immediately after her dad and stepmom married were fine, but after the honeymoon period ended, Sue and her siblings started to experience a new normal that was anything but. She was, I don't know, possibly jealous of um, me and my brother and sister having quite a close relationship with my dad. And I don't know, she just behaved quite strangely. Sue survived three years of this strange behaviour. You know, I'd have the situation where one day I'd come home from school and I'd, you know, my stepmother would be really nice to me and be asking me things about what I'd done or whatever. And then the next day, I, you know, I would be kind of treated as if I was the, the worst person that ever existed. And it kind of went from one to the other, so it wasn't consistent. And actually, I found that worse than anything else. You know, if she'd been consistently horrible, that would have been, I think, would actually have been better. Um, but the fact that she was sometimes nice and sometimes really horrible, and I couldn't really work out why, was, was just really confusing. Quite often, I was just being told off, and I wasn't allowed to answer back. So I wasn't allowed to say whether what my dad was saying was right or wrong. I just got told off for stuff and I just had to shut up and take it. Um, and it was always for things I hadn't done because I didn't do anything naughty hardly as a kid. You know, I was always like a kind of good girl and tried to make everyone happy, all that sort of thing. Um, and uh, so I didn't really do anything wrong, but I was kind of being told off for things I hadn't done and then told not to answer back, right? So I couldn't say anything against uh, what I was being uh, told off for. It sounds crazy now, but we had beans on toast every day uh, for three years, I think. Um, so I'd have no breakfast at home because I had to get up early and go and get the coach to school. And then I was supposed to pay for my own school dinner, so I didn't pay for them. So then I'd come home and every night and have beans on toast every single night. <laughs> um, I think one slice of toast, it might have been two, I can't remember. But I just remember always being hungry. I was always hungry. How did that resolve itself? Uh, well, so when I was 16, I left home. I couldn't take it, really. I mean, it felt like emotional cruelty and occasional physical cruelty. I was kind of worried for my sanity if I stayed at home. So I just one night, I just thought, I've had enough, and I can't take any of this, I'm going to go insane. So I think I just packed a few clothes and uh, got out my window, and a uh, bedroom window, and there was a roof underneath it. So I kind of crawled down the roof onto the ground and then ran away <laughs> into the night. Her first attempt at escape was not a success. Her dad threatened her boyfriend's mother, Sue's safe haven, with a visit from the police. So she went back home. But she developed a plan. I told my friend 
uh, what happened, my friend Kate, that we used to work in the um, the local cafe, waitressing. So I told her on the way to work one the next Saturday, I think, and she told me that her mum took in lodgers and maybe I could go and stay at her place. So I was like, please ask your mum. <laughs> so, so basically she did, and then, uh, yeah, so then I left properly after that. To pay my rent, I had to work, like, in the evenings and the weekend, and I was just starting my A-levels. So... And also I went to the grammar school, so it was 25 miles to school every day and then 25 miles back again. So basically I found that I was, you know, I was like getting up, at, I can't remember what time, say 7 o'clock, then go to school at 7.30, then I'd get back home about, say, 5, and then I'd go straight to work at the cafe. Work there for four hours uh, as a waitress and then I'd come back um, probably at 10 o'clock and then... Um, because I couldn't pay for rent because I was still at school and not earning properly, I paid. I think I paid about a third of the rent, which was very kind um, of Kate's mum. But because I only paid a third of the rent, I used to do all the washing up for everybody, uh, like after dinner. So there was about 12 people for dinner every night. So when I got back from the cafe, I'd eat my dinner that they'd kept, you know, cooked and kept for me, which was great, and then I'd do the washing up for everybody. Uh, and then, so then it'd be about midnight, and then I'd get my books out, trying to an hour or two of studying before I went to bed, and then got up again at seven the next morning. So it was just, I tried to do it for quite a while, but basically I'd, I'd end up going into school and um, falling asleep in the sixth form common room, like on the sofas, and then not really going to lessons. And then, you know, then I was just like, well, it's not working, is it? I need to get a job. She left school at 16 and got a job with a local county council. What is your enduring memory of that time? It's not feeling sorry for yourself, it's something else. Well, I guess once I'd left home, I I mean, I was really happy. You know, it just really was awful being at home. And so when I left, even though I had all this stuff to do, um, I felt like I was free. We just had really lovely dinners every night and I didn't have anyone hitting me or being emotionally cruel to me. So I can remember saying, I feel like I'm on holiday. I can remember where I was sitting, you know, it's like, it's like I'm on a holiday and, and hopefully it's never going to end, you know. So I was really happy. I was really, really happy. And I, did, I felt free. So even though life was difficult, I was just free. You know, no one was trying to make me feel bad about myself or, or just about anything. Yeah, I guess I was probably like a changed person. What followed was a period of self-reliance and coming of age. She moved to London, found her people, and started working with refugees. So it was like 1979 by then. So um, lots of uh, refugees were coming from Vietnam, the Vietnamese boat people, they were called. Someone she met there ultimately became the next chapter of her life. Uh, One group of refugees that came over were these six um, young men from Vietnam who, he was one of them. And in fact, I, I saw their visas before they came and I thought, oh, he looks quite nice. <laughs> and then, yeah, so then I, yeah, then Rita, I married him. It's quite funny. Why did you decide to get married? Because uh, he asked me, I guess, in a nutshell. He was a rebel, I think. That's probably why. I mean, I met him when I was 17. And, uh, yeah, he, he didn't. Um, he was kind of like... Uh, I suppose fun to be around and he he kind of it's like he knew what he wanted and he just he's kind of the opposite of me I I didn't know what I wanted and I didn't know what was right and what was wrong really and how to go about doing anything much that's how I felt I probably didn't seem like that 
But so, you know, he was very sort of certain and um, people listened when he talked, whereas I felt like no one, no one really listened when I talked, I suppose. I think I kind of had some sort of drive to create my own family, I think. I think because, you know, my family life had started off okay, but had kind of gone a bit uh, skew-if. Um, maybe I just, I wanted to create my own family, perhaps. So, yeah, I got married and then had my daughter Emma, and then two years later had twins, Sam and Ollie. So you're 23 years old, you've got three kids under the age of two. But something happened in your relationship that caused you to change everything again. Tell me a little bit about that. He was kind of fine to get along with most of the time, then now and again he just got a bit mental. Um, and I never really knew why. Um, you know, and I should have seen that as a sign. You know, now, like, it was quite clear he wasn't the best person for me to get married to. Um, but at the time I kind of thought, oh, it'll be fine. It'll all sort itself out, which of course it didn't. I found out he was having an affair and then I wanted to leave, but I couldn't because I had nowhere to go, nowhere. I just couldn't leave, so I had to stay. So, you know, and and he's kind of said things like, oh, you know, if you leave, you won't be any, you'll never be anything without me and you'll never be able to do anything or go anywhere because how would you manage and blah, 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 blah. Um, so I guess I kind of believed that to a certain extent. And it was when the twins were one, so it's like another year and a bit later, I wanted to get start getting back into education. So I went to start studying because um, I really missed it. And so I started a return to study course at the local adult education college. And um, he started, I think, getting a bit jealous of the fact that I was making friends with people and getting to know people. And he just got a bit more and more kind of aggressive or violent. And um, there was one day when... Or just before Christmas that year, Emma had just started nursery school and they were doing a um, nativity play. So um, I wanted to go along to that and, and take uh, the twins to see it and I wanted him to come along as well and he didn't want to go, but I persuaded him in the end and so we went along to it and uh, she was a sheep or something, I can't remember exactly. And then uh, on the way back home, one of the twins, um, I don't know what he did... But my ex-husband, like, pushed him over. He hit him, like, on the head and pushed him over onto the floor. And he's, like, one and a half. And and that was it. So that's when he did that. Like, my decision was made. I was going. You know, like, I just knew I had to leave then. Because that's the first time he'd actually hit or anything, any of the kids. So even though he'd kind of threatened me and and um, hit me a bit, he, he hadn't hit the kids before. So as soon as he did that, that was it. I was like, OK, I'm going to start planning to get out now. How did you plan? What did you plan? Well, I was trying to work out where to go and what to do. And I can't actually remember how long after that it was. I was just starting to, to think about what to do. I hadn't really got very far in my thinking. And um, he came home, because he worked nights, he came home at, I don't know, like five or six in the morning. And uh, basically I kind of woke up to him shouting his head off, saying he was going to kill all of us. So I just thought, well, here's my chance then. Here's my chance, I'm just going to go. And so... I started packing a suitcase and, you know, I can remember thinking, you know, I had twins, right, who were one, so I just needed loads of nappies. So I just had, like, a suitcase half full of nappies and half full of kids' clothes and maybe a couple of things for me. And, um, yeah, I, I asked him for some money because I didn't have any money and he wouldn't give me any. 
So basically, I got the kids dressed, got the suitcase ready, and just, you know, got the twins in the double buggy and Emma kind of holding on the side and the suitcase. And she got out. Her first stop was a friend's place, where her friend phoned the support group Women's Aid. But that moment of relief fell through. The phone rang again, and it was him saying he was coming over to kill us. So basically got going again, you know, got the twins back in the buggy, you know, running down the road with uh, Emma, like only two years old, hanging on, like running along with three years old, running along with me, pushing the buggy and holding the suitcase. I don't know how I did it really, but I was just so scared. Did you have any flashbacks when you were going through this to when you had escaped from your first home? You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was just escaping. Again, yeah, you're true, again, I hadn't really thought about it. But, yeah, escaping again. Um, and, yeah, my focus was escape. That was it, really. I, you know, I didn't want my kids to die. Um, and it's funny, because, like, before that, he'd said he was going to kill me, but I kind of never really took him seriously. Uh, whereas when he said he was going to kill all of us and kill the kids, I was like, OK, that's it. But, you know, I've been kind of looking for an, ex an excuse to go anyway, because once he hit Sam, I was, that was it. She ran to another friend's house, got in touch with Women's Aid again. And my friend lent me 20 quid for the cab, and then the cab came and off we went, really. And kind of that was the end of that, that um, part of my life. And uh, the beginning of a new one, really. So I ended up a single parent living on, in a council flat in Brixton. And, um, you know, that was great a lot of the time, and other times it wasn't so great. But I really did get kind of slated by, well, not just me, it was, you know, there was the whole thing from the government about single parents, blah, 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 you know, lots of negative stuff about single parents. And I just used to think, you know, they they have no clue what they're talking about. They really, really don't, the people that are saying this, because if they knew what my life was like and how how difficult things were and how much I had to struggle to just kind of like, you know, keep going with three kids and bring them up on my own and everything... They wouldn't be saying negative things about single parents at all. Sue went back into education. She did a maths course in the local college and her first degree at the local university. And that was where she started finding her voice, where people started to listen to what it was that she was saying, where people started giving her some respect. She was, after all, doing it all and surviving. You know, I'm still that same person, so I find it really interesting that now... You know, then I had five O-levels and three small kids and I'd had a difficult background. Um, but inside I was the same. And, and the way people treated me then to how they treat me now is a world apart, I have to say. You know, and obviously not everybody, but in general. You know, and I think about like, I don't know, going to the bank or going to um, interacting with the authorities, I suppose. You know, I mean, some people would be nice, but other people were just so, I don't know, offhand and uh, dismissive and, and not very nice. How did you how did you deal with that? Well, I just got on with it. You know, what was I going to do? You, you can't change everyone around you's opinion of you. And I mean, they're judging you by how you look. Right. So, you know, if you're like. 25 and you've got three little kids then obviously to some people you've done something really terrible to get yourself in that situation so you must be a bad person kind of thing is is how quite a lot of people approach approach you especially if you haven't got much money now that I've got a, a PhD and an OBE as you're saying it's just like people treat you just so so much differently 
So normally at this point in the story, I would let Sue draw some conclusions about strength in the face of adversity or personal triumph or self-actualization. But you know, I've listened to this interview about 500 times over the last few weeks and she just doesn't. She just doesn't dwell. She doesn't reflect. She doesn't get lost in woolly thinking. She just gets on with it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose so. I'd have to think hard and try and think myself right back into how I felt at the time, but um, I guess I must have done, you know. And you know, I think that that's where Sue's resilience lies. In her very British, mustn't grumble. I was just like, oh, this is depressing, but I'll just get on with it kind of thing. Dr. Sue Black, OBE, doesn't let life get her down. She just does. Next time on The Resilient, we visit Alicia, a wartime survivor who spent life in a gulag, lost her sister, and then 60 years later, reunited again. The Resilient was presented and produced by me, Alex Kratoski, and Pillowfort Productions. The sound design was by Katie McMurrin. It's brought to you by flowerapp.com. Because life happens. Find Flower and the Resilient at flowerapp.com.